The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab a hold of them and let's open them up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time today. 1 Peter 2, uh, if you can open a phone, a tablet, you can open a hardback black Bible. You'll find those under every single chair uh, to page 1014. That's 1 Peter 2. Uh, if you don't have a, a Bible of your own or yours is in a different version and you want one that's ESV, take those black ones as a gift. But 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I'm calling today's sermon, The Battle. I'm calling today's sermon, The Battle. Uh, because Peter is going to use language and metaphor of war in our passage today. Uh, so, so let me set it up like this. My dad, my father, is uh, a Vietnam War veteran, served in the military, uh, two tours in Vietnam. My dad went to West Point, okay, went to West Point uh, as a cadet. He was an army ranger, okay, so special forces, uh, which means he could you know, kill you in three moves or something, whatever that means. Uh, Very interesting. Dad did two tours in Vietnam, saw a lot of action uh, and remained, did a career in the military, retired many years later as a lieutenant colonel. Okay. So my dad was uh, very involved in the military. War is something that he knows well. Firsthand experience. Now growing up, uh, my dad rarely, if ever, talked about his time at war. Just didn't talk a lot about it, which, listen, is not uh, too unusual for veterans of wars to not feel like they want to talk a lot about it. But, um, but last summer, I was on a sabbatical with my family, and uh, my brother and I got a chance to take my dad on what we called a memory trip. So my brother and I took our dad to upstate New York to spend time at our family's lake house where we grew up going every summer. We would go to this lake every summer as kids with my dad. And so we said, let's do this. Let's take him on a memory trip. Very special time. My dad is almost 80. And so uh, it's one of those things that you don't get a lot of opportunities to do these uh, as your parents get older. And so uh, there's, there's one night, it was a wonderful trip. Uh, actually, I got COVID, so it's, it kind of sucked. Uh, but there was one night, uh, literally, I got COVID on my vacation. It was awful. But there was one night that was very special that I won't ever forget this one night. Uh, We were sitting on the porch in the evening overlooking our lake that we spend our time on as a family. Uh, And my uncle, who is also a Vietnam vet from the Navy, was sitting with us. And he and my dad started reminiscing uh, on their time during the war. First time I had ever ever heard him share uh, some of these stories. And if it, if it wouldn't have been terribly, terribly inappropriate, I would have pulled out my video, my phone to video this, this moment. It would have been totally inappropriate. It would have been so, I mean, it was a, it was a holy moment, a set apart moment in my life. And so I just sat there and soaked it in. But my uncle started asking my dad questions started asking him questions. And dad started talking like I'd never heard him talk before. And dad talked about his, f- his first night in combat and just the, the deep fear that he had as a 20-something-year-old kid. Dad started talking about the friendships that he made with other soldiers and the losses that they suffered. Dad started talking about the, the first time he discharged his weapon in combat and the first time he was fired on himself. And it was these two men nearing the end of their lives talking about life and the battles that they had been in. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a special night I won't ever forget. I have no record of it. I, I, yeah, I, it only lives here. And I know I don't, I normally start my sermons with a bit more levity than this, but you'll see this is heavy stuff we're dealing with in the text today. The Bible frequently uses war language to describe our lives. The life of a disciple of Jesus is called a battle. It's called war. 
And I want us to talk about that today because we'll see it in our text. When we talk about life as a battle, it comes with questions. It comes with questions associated with it. Uh, what does it take to fight this battle? What's it gonna take? What, 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 what are we even fighting this battle ultimately for? Like if we're just saved by Jesus, what's, what's, what's the battle language for? And then how do we survive this battle that we've been called into? That's some of what we're gonna see today in our text. So listen, the two verses that were read over us, those are the only two verses we're gonna cover. We're covering two verses today, just two, okay? Uh, and in those two verses, we're gonna see two points about the battle. Let's pick it up together. First Peter chapter two, we're gonna pick it up in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Okay. We're going to pick that verse apart. We're going to do some, some deep work in that verse today because in these two verses, we see that there are two aspects of this battle. And the first part is in that verse, verse 11, and that is that this battle is for you. The battle is for you. The life of the disciple is a battle and part of that battle is being fought for you. Peter says, for your souls, we talked about that word in Greek. It's the where we get our word psychology. Psyche is that word. It's for who you are in the innermost parts of your being. That's what's, what's at stake in this war. This battle is for you. Now, let me quickly explain some things in this verse, and then we're going to put some application on the tail end of this verse. But, but Peter starts by urging these Christians he's writing to to, to, to obey a command. He commands them, and, and his word is for them to abstain. Abstain. To abstain from something means to take no part in it, to have nothing to do with it. You abstain from it. You, you stay away from it entirely. It's a command. This is an imperative, okay? Abstain. And I just want to say this like, like this. Uh, for the Christian... Obedience is not an option. I just need you to know this. If you're a Christian, if you claim Christ, obedience is not optional. It's commanded. It's a command. You don't just get saved and then get to decide if you want to obey God's law. God commands us to obey his law. And gosh, I meet far too many people who would, with their mouths, say, I'm a Christian. I am a Christian, and yet when you look at their lives, it's like they have no intention of obeying anything that God commands them. But it's command. This is an imperative, not an indicative, an imperative. Abstain. Abstain from these things. Obedience is not optional, but what's really interesting is what Peter tells us to abstain from. Because this is what he says. He says, abstain from the passions of, of the flesh. Now, the Greek word for passions here is the word epithemia. Epithemia, okay? Uh, that's translated passions. I think it's a great translation. Uh, but other translations translate epithemia as a desire or a craving or a longing or a lust. Epithemia. It's a lust. It's a craving. It's a passion for something that's forbidden. That's epithemia. And what Peter is saying is that we are in a war with those passions, with epithemia. Now, you need to understand something about battle. If you want to know something about battle, here's a fact. In every battle, there's an enemy. In every battle, there is an enemy. There is a person or a force out there that is coming to attack you. They are attacking you and you either attack them back or you defend from them. But there is an enemy in every battle. And ancient Christians believed that there were three enemies to the, to the human soul. 
three enemies. You can find this throughout biblical theology, but those enemies of our souls are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The three enemies of our souls. And so I'd like to define those quickly because I think this would be really helpful as we talk about the passions of our flesh. First, let's talk about the world. I'll put these definitions up on the screen. The world is ideas, values, morals, practices, and norms that are culturally accepted but are in rebellion against God and redefine good and evil. I'll show you this, okay? That's what, that's what the world is. So let's think about some things in our world. Things that the world accepts, but that, but that are in rebellion against God and are redefining good and evil. So follow me here. Lust. Lust has now been redefined as love in our culture. Marriage. Marriage is no longer a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but more prominently, it is a contract for personal fulfillment. Divorce, on the other hand, is no longer a breaking of vows. It's rather a, an act of courage, an act of, of authenticity. Greed is now responsibility to shareholders. Racism is a past issue. Marxism is the future hope. And notice, both of those, one of those is on the left politically, one of those is on the right politically, okay? The, the, the world is on both sides of our politics. And then I know I've preached on abortion before, but I cannot think of a more egregious example than the greatest infanticide in human history cast as reproductive justice. These are, these are ideas, values, morals, practices, and norms that are culturally accepted, but they're in rebellion against God and they redefine good and evil. They flip things upside down in our world. That's the world. And I just challenge you, if you're a Christian, okay, every single believer in Jesus has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture here? Right, we've talked about this in 1 Peter, that Peter calls us exiles. We are not citizens primarily of this world. We are citizens of another country. We are sojourners and exiles is what he says in this text. And so the question is, where have I lost my status as exile? Because I've, I've bit into the world and taken it full bore. You see, for... For us, for many of us, my brothers and sisters, our great temptation is not going to be towards atheism, a complete rejection and disbelief of God entirely. Rather, as Christians, our great temptation is going to be towards complete worldliness with just a little bit of Jesus sheen over the top. Adopting the world with a Jesus fish bumper sticker on it. That's our temptation. It's the world. It's an enemy of our souls. The second one is the flesh. Here's how I'll define the flesh. The flesh is our base, primal, animalistic drive for self-gratification, especially as pertains to sensuality and survival. The flesh the flesh, again, is showing up all over the world. All over the world, the flesh is lauded. Here's some popular slogans where you will see the flesh in our culture. Uh, here, here's, here's one. The heart wants what it wants. That's the flesh. Follow your heart. That's the flesh. You do you. Seek your truth. Be true to yourself. That's, that's fleshly. That's fleshly. It's self-gratification. This is so perfectly summed up in the words of the modern prophet Elsa from Disney's Frozen. Uh, you might know of this prophet. Let me read her words to you. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. 
and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. All right, you've been, so, so you've been discipled by her too. Okay, I see how this works. Listen, listen, listen. In the flesh, self is the new God. In the flesh, self is God. It's the flesh. Third, finally, the devil. The devil or Satan. Here's my definition of, of the devil. The devil is a real immaterial, but intelligent being whose end is to spread ruin in our souls and society. Now, listen, if you're a guest with us and you're like, do you guys, I mean, really? 2023, like you, the, the devil, like that's what you're talking about? Right here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We believe in the devil. Not like, not that weird, okay, but like, there is a real, immaterial, but intelligent enemy seeking to ruin everything. We believe this. And I don't have enough time to go all into the devil. We've preached, I've preached sermons on Satan, okay? So we can go back and listen to those. But, but these are the three enemies who use our epithemia, our, our passions against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's another passage that's very closely linked with 1 Peter chapter 2 that I want to allude to. Uh, the Apostle John in his uh, epistle says this. Look at 1 John 2.16. I'll put this up here. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So that, that, the words there, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, that's the same Greek word. It's epithemia. The epithemia of the flesh, the epithemia of the eyes, both are talking about passions, desires, lusts, cravings. And so think about these with me. Think about these passions. Like, think about them like weapons in a war. Think about weapons that our enemy, the devil, is using to fight against us in this battle for you. Think about them like that. Or maybe we want to level up from the war metaphor for a second. Think about it like this. Our enemy is kind of like a fisherman. Like a fisherman. Okay, anybody in here fish? Got some people who fish in here? Okay. Uh, anybody in here who fishes have a secret spot, a good secret spot? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. I'd like to pray with you after service, okay? <laughs> um, listen, Jesus did a lot of ministry fishing, and I'd like to continue in his footsteps. So uh, we'll make that happen. But, but think of our enemy like a fisherman. Like a fisherman, okay? And think of him as a fisherman. I fly fish, so think of him like a fisherman that only has three flies in his box. And like any good fisherman, when you start fishing you tie on the fly that you think the fish are going to bite on. You think that. That's, that's good, you know, fishermen. And those flies, flies are meant to imitate the bugs that the fish like to eat. That's why they're called flies. Okay, it's why they're called lures. If you don't fly fish, you call them lures. Why do you call them lures? Because they're alluring. Because they lure a fish towards them. Now, what do you do if you're fishing and you're out and you've tied a fly on and the fly that you're using is producing nothing? The fish aren't biting on that fly. Well, you strip that line in, you pull up and you snip that fly off. You reach into your pouch, you get another fly, you tie something else on. Maybe they're surfacing, you go with a dry fly, I don't know. You do something else. You do something else because the first fly you were using isn't working. But if you switch up the bait you have a better chance of enticing another fish onto that line. And now the thing is about every fly, about every lure, is that hidden within that, that jumble of feathers and string and foam and whatever it might be made of, hidden in there is a hook. 
You don't just put a hook on a piece of string and throw it out there and just hope for the best. No, 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 you disguise the hook to look like something appetizing to the fish. Every lure has a hidden hook. And once the fish has that hook in his mouth, you just have to reel him in. Sounds easy, right? It's not, okay? Uh, it's not at all. But, but this is what the enemy is doing in this battle. This is what our enemy is doing. He's throwing, he's casting these three lures of temptation, passions, lusts, epithemia. He's casting them, you see. And, and the thing about them is they look tempting. They look tasty. We don't see the hook. We see the fly. We see the lure, these passions, these lusts. They're alluring, but every lure has a hidden hook. And this is what he uses against you and I. Desires of the eyes. Okay, these tend to be things. Money. Toys. Security. It's a desire to have something. It's going to get you with it. You don't like that one? Okay, he'll snip that off and he'll tie on the desires of the flesh. Desires of flesh are appetites. Their appetites, it's food, it's drink, it's drugs, it's sex, it's porn. It's about a feeling and getting that in you as quick and as fast and as easy as possible. And if it's not that, then it's the pride of life. And oh goodness, in our upper middle class college educated society, be careful because the pride of life is about being somebody. It's about being somebody. It's about position. It's about status. It's about respect. It's about power. Here's how it plays out today. It's about clicks. It's about likes. It's about comments. It's about followers. So Peter is saying, this is a battle for you, for your soul. So abstain from the passions of the flesh. He doesn't say fool around with those passions. Don't toy around with them. Don't flirt with those passions. Don't think college students here. Don't think, oh, well, I'm young. I'm young right now. And guess what? Later, I'll, t I'll deal with those passions. But for right now, I'm young. I'll be fine. I can play a little bit right now. Well, I'm in my 20s. That's fine. I'll deal with those passions when I get older. And all the 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-ish people in this room said, no, you ain't. Because some of us are struggling with the same passions that we dealt with in our 20s that we never dealt with. Peter's saying, abstain from these things. Why? He says at the very end of verse 11, because they are waging war against your souls. That's not light language. That's why I'm calling this sermon the battle because our metaphor means that these passions must be quite strong. Must be unbelievably strong if they're described in warfare terminology. He's not throwing that metaphor away. He's using it to level up the seriousness with which he's talking about this epithemia, the passions of the flesh. This image implies this is not going to be easy. So what do we do with the battle? How do we wage war? How do we fight? Well, I want to use an illustration that I've used a number of times. If you've been around Fathom for a while, you've heard this one. And if you are bored with it, I don't care because I like this one, okay? This is an illustration I took from Matt Chandler. But have you ever seen one of those animal shows on Discovery Channel where someone is like raising at home a bear or like a wolf or a tiger? You seen some of these shows? I mean, think back to COVID, like watching Netflix. Remember the Tiger King? Remember that gem of cinema? Okay, it's like that, okay? But, but I remember Marcy and I years ago, I mean, when we were first married, we were watching one of these shows on Discovery Channel and it's telling the tale of this guy who uh, found a grizzly bear cub. The cub, okay, a little baby bear and he raised this bear as a pet. 
I trained him and raised him as a pet, tried to domesticate a grizzly bear. Uh, he named the bear Rocky. Okay, you think he's gonna punch him in the face? I mean, Rocky, okay, but I don't know. He chose, chose that name. Now, Rocky the bear was trained. He would do tricks. He was on TV shows. I mean, he was very successful as far as grizzly bears go, okay? Very successful grizzly. Um, but one day during a filming session, this guy was in Rocky's cage with Rocky, and they were practicing one of the tricks that they have trained on for his whole life. And there's a video camera capturing all of this at this time, okay? Now, out of nowhere, Rocky the bear turns he attacks his trainer, bites him in the throat, rips his throat out, tears out his jugular, and the trainer dies right there. Now, that was crazy footage. It's on YouTube. I watched it again this week. I commend it to you, okay? Uh, you can search Rocky the Bear on YouTube. Not right now, but when you get home, okay? After, after the Broncos get beat up, okay? Then you go ahead and, and watch this, okay? But... But that was crazy. I watched it again. It's crazy. It's disturbing. But what's even crazier is that on the, the animals attack show that Marcy and I were watching, they then cut from that footage to interviews with this guy's friends and family members and like cousins and stuff. And the things that they were saying were even more shocking than the footage of the bear attacking the guy. They were saying things like this. I mean, I'm watching this. They're saying this. Rocky loved him. I don't, know, I don't know why Rocky would have done something like this. He's such a sweet bear. And can you imagine me watching this? Like I'm getting incited on my couch, freaking out. I'm like wanting to scream at the, at the television. I know why Rocky did this. Because he's a bear. He, he is a 700-pound apex predator. It is built in his DNA to kill prey. And listen, I don't know if he was hungry or what, if he moved weird, looked like a deer or something. I'm not sure. But, but, but in that moment, you were prey. He was the predator. Just because you gave him a name doesn't make him safe. But oh, my friends... This is all too often how we treat our sin. We treat it like a pet. And we let it come into our lives when it's a baby. When it's small and seemingly innocent and the consequences aren't dire and you can fight off that baby bear pretty easily. But it'll grow. It always does. And your sin will eventually turn into the apex predator that it is. And hear me, one day it will attack you. You won't be ready for it. But if you let it live with you for long enough, it'll one day attack you and its intent is to take you out. Please don't pretend that sin isn't a big deal. It is a huge deal. Peter is telling us to wage war against these things. To make a declaration of war against the passions of our flesh. Don't try and keep a predator as a pet. Can you imagine the foolishness there? And yet we do it every single day. We do it all the time. So, pastor, how do you handle this then? Okay, here's what you do. Here's what you do. You get that bear, you walk him out into the street, into the broad daylight, and you pull out a nine millimeter and you put two bullets in the back of his head. Turn that thing 99, 90, 90 degrees, executioner style, okay? Just put the bear down. Kill Rocky. And, and listen, if you've got some PETA leanings, I don't need an email, okay? This is an illustration, all right? I'm sure Rocky was a lovely bear, okay? But... Listen, John Owens is a theologian in church history, and John Owens has this saying. I think it applies here. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. This is the battle. It's for your soul. 
very center of your being. Don't give your sin a chance to kill you, but rather take drastic drastic measures. Be violent against your sin. Put it to death. You don't manage your sin. You don't simply keep your sin in check. You launch an all-out military assault and put it to death. That's the battle. But it's only the first verse of what Peter does in two verses. That's only half of the battle. So let's pick it up and look at verse 12. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles hospitable, or honorable, I'm sorry. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now that's, that feels like an interesting turn to me for Peter. Because in the battle, Peter had commanded us to abstain from sin, from passions, to wage war against the flesh, to do battle. Because this battle's for you, for your soul. But now the second purpose in verse 12 is that your conduct, how you behave, how you obey, your conduct is actually going to affect the unbelievers around you. So this is also, yes, it's a battle for you, but this is also a battle for others. How you obey is directly linked to whether or not those around you, the Gentiles, those who don't believe, will glorify God on the day of visitation when Christ returns or not. So this is fascinating Peter says, your obedience, your abstinence, your conduct is how you battle for others to get saved. Christians are to live exemplary lives, not perfect lives, but exemplary lives with the kind of good deeds that will make unbelievers take notice. That's what he says. Talking about the battle. This is why at Fathom we say, go deep and reach wide. Discipleship is both. It's both of these things. How you behave around unbelievers matters greatly. It matters greatly. Because the goal of our faith is to provoke unbelievers, as he says, to glorify God on the day of visitation. So listen, you you just have to know this. We've talked about obedience as not optional. Hear me. You're not only obedient for yourself. You're actually obedient for the sake of others as well. This isn't just a battle for you. This is a battle for everyone around you. It's a battle for others. Now, I just want to linger here for a moment because there's some things that are really important that Peter's saying here. What Peter's saying is, is this. There are some people who only you can reach. There are some people that only you have the ability, the gospel presence to reach for Christ. And there's so many ways we kind of skirt around this. Like, listen, uh, it's a great thing that today in this day and age, you can give your unsaved friends a myriad of resources about God. Right? There's books and resources to read by wonderful authors who can articulate the gospel with such clarity and competence that you'll never be able to measure up to. You ever read a book and you're like, I could never say something like that as brilliant as that. Well, just give that book to your unsaved friends, right? Like that's a, that's a good thing. It's a great thing that you can share in our digital age, videos and podcasts and social media posts to engage your unbelieving friend's thoughts toward the things of God. It happens all the time. It's a great thing. It's a a very good thing that you can invest in your friends and invite them to come to church with you, to come to fathom with you. Right, to like be led in, in corporate worship and excellent experiences to hear, I mean, decent preaching. Slightly above average. We'll just put it there, okay? Uh, decent preaching. And, and, and frankly, you, get to, you can invite them to meet other Christians who believe these things, like in real life. These are great things. It's great that these resources are available to you, but what Peter, I think, would say is 
that those things have nothing. They're nothing when compared with your conduct in the eyes of the unbelievers around you. How you live matters more than those things. So listen, I heard Tim Keller say this, um, and it's really hard for me to quote this one because it's, it's just hard for me to say this, but it's Keller, so it's probably true, okay? But this is what Keller says. He says this, in the end, very few people will really be drawn to God through preaching. In the end, very few people will really be drawn to God through preaching. This does not bode well for my career choice, right? Like, I miss Keller. He preached, so he must have figured it out somehow. But listen, I agree with him. As painful as it is for me to say, I agree with him because I've been in vocational ministry for more than 20 years now. I've worked in churches for more than 20 years now. And here's my experience. People don't often come to Christ because of preaching. People almost always come to Christ because of other people. And I'll bet if we had time and we could open the mic and we could all share our testimony, maybe there was a sermon at some point that was really stimulating for you. But listen, you probably didn't even get there without another person. It's almost never preaching in a vacuum, like the, like the compelling preached word that saves people. It's almost always a relationship. It's almost always a story like this. My neighbor started to love on me. My coworker found out that I was going through this mess and started lovingly walking with me through that. My mom or my dad, continually growing up, prayed over me, shared the gospel with me. They prayed me, literally prayed me into the kingdom. This is a battle for others. Your life is a battle for others. Listen, this, this is how we reach wide. It's how we do this. It's not about giving people resources, but you should. It's not about posting spiritual stuff on social media, but you can. Good, God help us. It's not about bringing people to hear me preach. Though I want you to. It'd make me feel great, okay? Sure, do those things. Do that, but do them as a part. Do them as a part. How you live matters. Now, uh, when I think about this battle for others, I tend to think about it in terms of what I call spheres of influence. I've taught on this before, but spheres of influence. Every single one of us lives in spheres, like circles, like areas, spheres where we can exert influence in relationships there. And so I, I like to put them in three kind of neat, tidy categories. I know it's maybe not everything, but let me just put them here. The three spheres of influence I like are where you live, where you work and where you play. Kind of the three categories, where you live. Okay, where you live is your family. It's your family. So Marcy was in first service, my wife. She's already saved, so it's like, done, all right? Easy. Now, but, but I know enough of y'all to know that, that you might have a spouse that isn't saved. That's your sphere of influence. Take it from my house. Okay, my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, Harper. Listen, how I live around her matters. How I live matters as much, if not more, than whether we do family devotions, than whether I, you know, read her the Bible. Than, how I live matters. So, so hear me, I pray for her. And I do share Christ with her, but I'm trying to show her with my life, with who we have in our home, with everything that we do, how Christ wants us to live. It's my family. Then it extends to extended family, extends to my in-laws. Royce, you need some help, ma'am. Okay, I'm here for you. That was a scowl, gosh. <laughs> to my aunts, to my uncles, you have family. They are your sphere of influence. Your sphere of influence is your family. The second one is where you work. This is your job, okay? This is your career. This, I would also say for students, this is your school. Okay, it's your job right now. It's where you work. But at your work, 
and how you live matters. How you do these things matter. A- ask yourself, is how I work, is that conduct honorable? Am I cutting corners? Am I griping about the boss just like everyone else? Is my conduct honorable? Do those around you, do you see them as, as people you're in a battle for? I mean, really, do you ever invest in them any deeper than talking about work or talking about the weather or talking about how bad the Broncos are? Like, do you do anything deeper than that? Anything. And gosh, this can be as easy as just asking them questions. Hey, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your life. Tell me about your family. Hey, tell me, like, tell me what's most important to you. Tell me what drives you. It can't be this thing. Come on. This, uh, like, just tell me, what is it? And then I've, I, just, I tell everybody this. As a Christian, you just say, hey, you know I'm a Christian. Is there anything I can pray for you for? And I have never had, even the most hardened atheist offended at me for asking if I could pray for them. Because everybody sends out thoughts and prayers, right? Like, so just say, hey, can I pray for you? And then follow me, pray for them. Like, do it. You'll be shocked by what they'll share. I said this a couple weeks ago. I'll say the exact same thing again. If you're a Christian and you are in contact with non-Christians and they don't notice anything different about you, you better check to see if you're actually a Christian. You better check. Final sphere of influence. I don't have time for this, but the final sphere is where you play. Where do you play? When you check out of work, where do you play? Where do you recreate? Where do you hang out? Who do you hang out with? So for me, this includes the neighbors on my block. Live in a cul-de-sac, 12 homes, two and maybe a third are Christians, and that's it. So there's nine, maybe eight homes on that block. That's my mission field. That's a sphere of influence for me. It's with my daughter's soccer team. The family's there. You ever been to an eight-year-old soccer game? It's like no one's a Christian there. But when I'm there, like that's, I'm a Christian there. I'm not just Harper's dad. I'm a Christian first in those places. The softball team that I play on, all of these are opportunities where I play to show how I live and that it matters. So where you live, where you work, and where you play, those are your spheres of influence where you ought to be in a battle for others. We're talking about evangelism. Did you know that? Okay, I haven't used the word evangelism because I didn't want you to like check out, but that's what I'm talking about today. Evangelism, you following me here? Evangelism, okay? Whenever we talk on evangelism, I always say this. They're like, what's, what, like, what's the church's plan for how we're going to do evangelism? Like, what's our evangelism strategy? And I always answer it the same way. You. You're the plan. It's, I mean, it's profound. You are the plan. It's, it's not just me. It's in the, the book. The church isn't the plan. You are the plan. You're the plan for how God wants to see more men, more women, more students, more children bow the knee to Christ and enter into a relationship with them. You're the plan. And Peter would, as Peter would put it, keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles is how. It's how. So many of you uh, think that the pressure is on me. Like evangelism, you think the pressure is on me because I'm the pastor. Like, like it's my job to make sure that your, you know, your friends get saved or something like that's like that because I'm a pastor because I'm paid by the church. That's my job. So you bring your lost friends to church and you're like, Hey man, I hope Chris is here today. See here, is that guy preaching? Like, I hope he's here. Hope the dude's good because I brought my unsafe friend, right? Sometimes you'll do this to me. I'll be out in the hallway. You'll get here before your friend. You'll come up. You'll be like, Hey, I've hyped you up, pastor. You ready? You preaching today? You ready? What are we preaching on? Not money, right? And like, like you say these things to me and, and hear me, I love it, okay? Keep bringing them, bring them on. Bring, them, bring your unsaved friends here and I'll do my part. I'll do my part, but the text says it's not my battle. My battle's on my block. My battle's in my home. My battle's on my girl's soccer field. Your battle is with that person. That's your battle. And I'll do my part, okay? So, so listen, we're stealing, I say it all the time, we're stealing the Home Depot tagline here, okay? Evangelism, how do we do it? You can do it, we can help. That's what we're gonna do here. You do it, you can do this. 
You can talk with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. You can do it and we'll do our part. Keep bringing them, keep, keep doing that. But we are in partnership with you. The church is here to help you fight in this battle. So guys, this is the battle that I see in this text. First Peter chapter two, verses 11 and 12. Two verses, it's a battle for you and it's a battle for others. So let's talk application as we close up. Let's talk about that first part, the battle for you. How you doing? How are you doing with abstaining from passions of your flesh right now? How's that epithemia? How's the flesh? How's those, how's it going right now? Oh, the enemy's a fisherman. Are you biting on some lures right now? Man, that bug looks tantalizing. It looks alluring. Got it in your mouth? Sniffing around that thing? You got a full-on hook in your lip? Hey, I love you guys. You're my church. I love you. Today's the day to drag them into the light. Those passions, that sin, the little baby that grew up into something that you're not able to manage as easily anymore. Today's the day to drag him into the light. And today's the day to put him to death. It's to, to, to be violent with your sin. You say, how do you do that? Okay, two things. First, you confess. Confess your sins, you confess. Confession is dragging that bear into the light. Sin thrives in the darkness. Sin thrives in hidden places. Sin thrives in secret. And confession, all you're doing when you confess to someone that you have been sinning, that you have been biting on some of those, those lures, is you're getting it out of the closet and you're putting it on display in the light. You gotta tell someone, please don't believe that it's okay if you just confess it to God. It's not enough. This is why James chapter five says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So confess. This is one of the reasons why we have prayer partners every Sunday in the back of the room after I'm done preaching, okay? You can come to them. You can confess to them. They'll pray for you. They will pray for you. We're not gonna, you're not gonna find any judgment back there. You confess something, you're not gonna shock us. You wouldn't believe the mountain of sin that was confessed and now we hired them, right? Confess. And number two is repent. In the Bible, confession and repentance always go hand in hand, but they're not the same. Confession is dragging the sin into the light. Repentance is shooting the bear in the head. Confession is getting that into another person's ears and removing the power that secret sin has. But repentance is doing the most drastic means necessary to turn away from that thing and never return. It's killing that sin. It's changing the direction of your life. So hear me, this is my, my, my commitment to you. If you confess your sin here, we, our staff, our elders, our leaders, we commit that we will walk with you on the journey of repentance. Because confession is a momentary thing that happens. Repentance is a longer term thing. It's gonna take process and progress to walk away from however big that bear is that you've been hiding away for a minute. Confess and repent. That's the battle for you, for me. Now let's apply this other point. How are you doing when it comes to your conduct with others? How's, how's evangelism going? Because that one is a, sometimes that one feels harder for us. Is your conduct honorable in your spheres of influence? Are you being intentional with people in those spheres? Because this is a battle for them. So I have homework for you. 
like, I'd like for you to confess and repent today. And I would like for you to go home and do some homework. Here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to go home later today or sometime this week, probably later today, because you'll forget by, well, by the time you get home. So do it today. I want you to take a piece of paper out and I want you to write the three spheres, where you live, where you work, where you play. And I want you to list where those things are. I want you to list baseball team, soccer team, school, class, job, whatever it might be. And then I want you to think through some of the people that are in those spheres of influence who are not Christians, who you are called to demonstrate God's love to. Just get it down on paper. Write down a few names. Maybe do this on your own. Maybe do this with your family or your friends. Maybe do this with your D group, okay? But as you think about those people, I want you to begin to dream and brainstorm about the ways you might start the process of actually battling for them rather than being indifferent towards them. Maybe that'll include sharing stuff with them or inviting them to church or posting something on their page, but it should undoubtedly include living the gospel out in front of them. How you live matters. So this is two verses. This is the battle that we're in, the war that we're in. Obedience for the sake of your soul and obedience for the sake of your people. Let's pray towards that end together. Lord, we bless you today. It's good and right for us to talk about these things. Some feel heavy. Like calling out sin, calling out secret sin, calling out hidden sin, making, making clear the seriousness of sin. These are hard things. So my prayer for my friends today right now is, is Courage. It doesn't take courage to hide. It doesn't take courage to lie. It doesn't take courage to pretend. It doesn't take courage to be fake. It does take courage to confess, to drag something we want no one to know about into the light in order to rob it of its power and to take whatever drastic steps are necessary to repent and turn from that thing. Lord, I pray courage over my friends. Some of them are talking themselves out of it right now. Holy Spirit, break through that. Give them what they need to confess and repent. And also, Father, I pray that you would put names of people in our heads right now. Neighbors, friends, family, people who we know, gosh, we're just not living up to the par that we are being called to. God, I'm praying for conviction for all of us today. Conviction is different than guilt different than shame. We shouldn't feel ashamed of this stuff. We should feel convicted by your spirit. That is a good gift from you. So Holy Spirit, you are the true preacher of Fathom Church. We say it all the time. Preach to our hearts. Give us courage. Give us conviction that we might play our role and fight in this battle. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the spirit. Amen.